You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsor, Google. Google is proud to sponsor Revision Path in championing excellence and diversity in the creative community. They believe that design is critical to building great products and experiences, and they're committed to fostering best-in-class results with efforts like material design, which is a unified system that combines theory, resources, and tools to help you craft beautiful digital experiences, and Google Design. From producing original articles and videos to hosting creative and educational partnerships, their goal is to connect, support, and inspire designers and technologists. To learn more, please visit them at design.google. Now for this week's interview. We're talking with Aaron Newby, a freelance product designer and accessibility advocate in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Well, hi, my name is Erin. I am a freelance product designer currently. I'm also an accessibility advocate. I like to do a little bit of tech writing, and I also um, volunteer at an accessibility organization. Nice. So I've always been curious about freelancing in New York City because it's such a big place. There are hundreds, thousands, I'm sure, of designers that are, you know, that are doing it. What's kind of been the biggest challenge so far with doing freelancing? Um. To be completely honest, I would say it's gaining a stream of consistent clients. I think a lot of the some of the clients that I've had recently have been referral based, which has been nice based off of some of my previous work. And then I've also worked with a lot of um, recruiters in terms of working with contracts that they've had. So I guess a lot of it boils down to networking just to really get yourself out there to be able to secure something. And what kind of projects are you working on now? Can you speak to any of those? Yes, I'm currently working with a telecommunication communications company. And then I'm also working on very small like branding and identity projects. All right. How do you end up approaching new projects? Uh, In what way? In terms of like bigger projects or like I generally send out a questionnaire to some of my smaller clients just to, you know, clarify what they're asking for, gather pretty much um, any visual samples just to get like a clear direction. Because I find when I work with a lot of freelance clients, sometimes if they're smaller, they don't have like really clear direction in terms of what they want. And a, a large portion of beginning with work with that client is just trying to clarify what exactly they're asking for in terms of direction. Okay. And so I guess that can vary based on the type of project, but you usually try to start out with making sure that you ask those questions first. Yeah, exactly. So before going freelance, I know just because we've been acquainted, you yeah. know, we've, we've <laughs> talked before, you worked as a product designer for a large number of years at NASDAQ. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah, it was very interesting. I was very new to the fintech fintech space, so it took a lot of like getting familiar with that landscape. And it was also interesting working there as well because I didn't just necessarily work under one business unit. I got the opportunity to work under multiple different business units just to see how different aspects of that company was ran. It was a very uh, interesting experience in terms of like the, the type of people that I've worked with. I constantly found myself as the youngest designer on a team. I was the only black woman designer on the team. And then I've only worked with a few um, 
other colleagues that looks like me throughout my years there. Oh, interesting. I'm thinking, you know, of something like, you know, NASDAQ, financial technology. I'm curious, how does UX play into that? Can you talk about like some of the stuff that you did while you were there? Yeah. Okay. So I think when a lot of people hear the name NASDAQ, they automatically think of the stock exchange, which is rightfully so. I mean, that's pretty much um, how they dominate that landscape. Um, but they also have a lot of other ap- like applications and products that they own. So for example, I worked on a, a platform for boards and C-suite level leadership. So they, they try to infiltrate all of these other spaces. I've also worked on a platform, which was a research tool for financial advisors to help put together their clients' portfolios. And I've also worked on a little bit of a more innovative product that incorporate what which was one of the use cases for blockchain in fintech in one of Nasdaq's private markets. So it's it's very interesting how like UX and tech intertwines into fintech. But I do think that there's a lot of I want to say since fintech is fairly new to the tech space in terms of like the maturity of that space, there's still a lot to be ironed out in terms of like the application of UX in that space. So if anyone's interested into in joining fintech, it's um, it's growing very fast in terms of what you can learn, different pathways you can f- explore and different technologies that you can potentially use. Did you first get into it just because of this position into fintech? Yes. Um, yep. I was freelancing at the time before I picked up this position and um, the director of product design there was interested in my portfolio. And he was like, well, do you want to come and join the team? Like we're working on some really interesting products. And I was like, sure. So then I came on board and then I uh, spent quite a few years there. Okay. And now you're striking out on your own in New York City. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So in your Twitter bio, you mentioned being uh, Detroit born and bred. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a specific affinity for Detroit. My mom is from there. Her family's from there. I've only been there once. I went when I was a baby. There's like a picture of me as a baby. <laughs> and I'm wearing this. Um, It's like a red and white button. And it says, I did it in Detroit, <laughs> 1981. Um, what was it like growing up in Detroit for you? Um, well, um, okay, so I grew up in a like very lower income inner city community. Um, it wasn't the Detroit that it is now. I think that Detroit is becoming fairly gentrified. But yeah, so but my parents were very adamant about education. So they put me through um, some of the best schools that they could afford at the time. So I had like a very interesting like dual experience of being grown up in the hood, but then also being able to experience other aspects of life in terms of like going through private schooling, going through Lutheran schooling. And that sort of thing, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's like a good depiction of that experience. Okay. No, I went to, I remember I went to a Lutheran preschool, Mm -hmm. I think. So I I, kind of, I get what you're saying there. I kind of want to talk a little bit more just about Detroit in general. We've had a few folks on the show who are either from Detroit or they're currently there. Craig Wilkins, who won the National Design Award a couple years back. Andrea Williams, I think most recently at the, right around the beginning of the year, we had Aisha Blake, who does uh, some work there for Detroit Labs. Mm -hmm. And I remember from my conversation with her, she was sort of talking about how Detroit is changing in this, you know, sort of very interesting way. And you're saying like it's becoming a lot more gentrified? 
Um, I would believe so. I mean, it's there's a lot of creativity in Detroit right now. I was just there like a month ago for my grandmother's birthday. So I, I constantly get to go back and see how it's like evolving. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of tech companies that are moving into Detroit currently, which is great, I think, for the community. It brings jobs there. It just brings more interesting jobs there. But also, I feel like the, the downtown areas and then also like Midtown have completely been revamped. I went down there with my mom when I when when I visited there for my grandmother's birthday, and she was like, "Yeah, Aaron, these areas are nothing like how they were when I grew up." She was like, "You wouldn't mm-hmm. even be able to believe to imagine um, what they looked like." So, just in terms of like the wealth that migrated into those spaces and um, yeah. what happened to the communities that were currently there, do you think that the culture is is kind of still there, or is it being edged out too? I think some of the culture is being edged out. I think because when people think about Detroit outside of some of the more negative aspects of it, you people tend to think about Motown, for example, or the automobile industry. Mm-hmm. And I don't really know if people associate Detroit with music and or cars anymore. So in terms hmm. of that, I think some of that though some of those cultural aspects of Detroit are try- are sort of kind of getting etched out but i will say though just because i am from detroit like whenever i go back i still do feel the culture in detroit just because i do have like a lot of people that are still there and like family members yeah. so it still feels like home yeah I, I feel like it's sort of that way a bit in atlanta although i think it's it's happening slowly i mean the city definitely has gentrified since i got here Geez, 20 years ago. Wow. Since <laughs> since I got there 20 years ago, it has certainly uh, gentrified and changed a lot. Even the particular neighborhood that I'm in, which is a historically black neighborhood, the West End. Mm-hmm. And like the culture is still there, but you, you can tell that there are ways that it's sort of slowly starting to change and shift. And it's something that I didn't really realize until honestly, really until I started freelancing and started being able to go to different parts of town that I'm not in regularly. Every time I go back there, it's like, whoa, this is completely different. Like the Midtown in Atlanta that I knew when I moved there and the Midtown now are like night and day. Mm -hmm. Even Buckhead, like I live, I used to live in what used to be the club district in Buckhead. And now it's Tom Ford, Hermes, yeah, like it's it's completely changed um, a lot. And so people are getting edged out of certain neighborhoods. It's starting to happen a little bit mm-hmm. in my neighborhood, but it's kind of still, you know, staying the same for now. But I know what you mean about how that that culture can kind of change and shift. Yeah. Uh, so so growing up there in Detroit was design kind of a part of your childhood. Were you exposed to it in any sort of way? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I guess you could um, I went to performing arts high school. And I guess that's the closest that I got to design until I went to college. But design was not a part of my childhood at all. I didn't even like think that that was a a career pathway that I could go down until I got into college, basically, which was interesting. So. And speaking of which, you went to uh, Michigan State University. Is that right? Yes, I am a Spartan. Spartan. What was your time like there? Um, it was, it was, it was it was cool. It was interesting. I um, studied uh, advertising actually, but like advertising design because I wanted to be this big ad world 
um, designer working at all these like advertising agencies. So I think I thought it was great. Like I studied abroad while I was there. I took a communications program overseas, which, you know, opened up the world a little bit to me, which was great from mom, um, just from my experience from being in Detroit, just to see what was out there a little bit more. I got to network a lot. Some of my friends that I went to school with were still friends. A lot of them were actually ended up in tech, which was interesting. So, yeah. And when did you end up sort of making the move to New York City? About five years ago. So once I graduated, I actually did start working at an advertising agency. Okay. Um, and so I moved, I did, I was working in Texas for a little bit, contracting at an advertising agency. And then one of my friends um, who's currently a developer at Salesforce, he tapped me up. Well, he called me. He was like, Aaron, you should check out UX. Like you should check out product design. Like you should see what's going on over there. He was like, I think that that's where the design industry is heading. And this is like years ago, way before, you know, we got all these like fancy product design titles and like, you know, interaction designer. This had to have been in like 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. when everyone was still calling product designer web designer. And um, so I started like looking into that and I got fascinated by like solving human-centric problems so but with by using design so from there I started like self teaching myself design and then I started looking for like startups that would you know take someone like me who was like a self-taught designer at the time Mm -hmm. so then I slowly I made that transition and I got picked up at a a startup in Brooklyn and as like a split between like an art director and an interaction designer. So I still had the strengths of an art director, but then also I was learning interaction design on while being there. And they thought that that was fine, which was a really good opportunity now looking back. So then that's how I slowly started to transition into like a product designer. Nice. I bet it was good to kind of have that little, uh, well, I wouldn't say little, but to have those experiences under your belt where you're working at say smaller type companies, maybe the stakes are a little bit lower, but you're also learning on the job and picking up kind of what it is to be in this new profession. That's that's a pretty good thing. Yeah, I'm very fortunate (laughs) in that way. (laughs) Now, you mentioned uh, this before we started recording, how there's been several folks that you know that have been on the show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually, one of them in particular, uh, Regine Gilbert, uh, had a question around accessibility for me and i know that you're a big yeah and i know that you're a big accessibility um advocate and we can go into this you know i certainly do want to go into this a lot more but just kind of in general what can designers and you know developers that listen to this show as well what can they do to include accessibility more into their work like why is it important um, well, I guess the why is it important? Because if you recognize people with disabilities as a minority group, it's the largest minority group on the planet. So looking at it from that aspect, um, should come not, should, should just alert us into, um, recognizing the fact that this is an actual, issue. And then also outside of that, everyone is going to experience some form of disability in their lifetime, whether it be temporary, whether it's invisible. So it's not only that you're we're designing for accessibility, we're just, at the end of the day, we're designing for everyone because disabilities are going to affect everyone at some point in their life. So once you start looking at it from the fact that we're not designing for someone else, you're designing for yourself, um, then that should, you know, make people a little bit more aware of the fact that accessibility shouldn't be something that's in the category of an other when thinking about design. What is an invisible disability? An invisible disability is something that you can't 
recognize by looking at somebody. So for example, like cognitive impairments, like let's say someone has depression, anxiety. I know mental health is a big issue nowadays. That definitely classifies as a disability. Someone that has multiple sclerosis, like depending on how their symptoms are flaring, you might not necessarily know. Someone that's dysle- that has dyslexia, um, there's no way of knowing that by looking at someone. So it's just like those instances and examples fall into the category of um, invisible disabilities. I'm glad that you mentioned that because there's a there's a case actually that's around right now. We spoke about this a little bit before recording. There's this case about someone who is suing Domino's Pizza. It's a blind man who is suing Domino's Pizza because uh, the website is not accessible to him. Like he tried to use it with a with a screen reader, like tried to order a pizza using a screen reader and it was incompatible. And so he filed a lawsuit and now Domino's is actually trying to to fight it like they're petitioning the supreme court to hear the case what do you think about that um i think i at first i'm very shocked that domino's decided to take it all the way up to that level because target did that a few years uh quite a few years ago like they tried to take it all the way up to um i guess where domino's is trying to take it and they ultimately lost and my thing is like shouldn't History, history repeats itself. It's, it's baffling to know that Domino's is doing that currently because under a lot of um, regulations, it is against the law to not have your site and or your product or your, your app inaccessible to people with disabilities. So it's interesting to see how this is going to play out. I personally believe that they're not going to win the case, but I guess we'll have to, to see because I, I don't know. Like, I, I just can't believe that they're taking it all the way up this far. Yeah. I mean, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, Title Three of that act, like firmly states that websites are under that. Although right. I don't know if it says anything. And this is something actually that Domino's was trying to argue in their petition is saying that the accessibility of websites or like smartphone apps or things like that, they don't know if that qualifies per se as public accommodation. Okay, so then I guess we would have to look at what does what falls under the category of public accommodation, right? You know, so I, I guess a, what so I'm I, now I currently want to look up the definition of a public accommodation just to like be, <laughs> be clear on that because isn't Domino's accommodating the public by serving them for them to be able to buy purchase food from them? Like, isn't that yeah? Like there, there's brick and mortar Domino stores you can go to. So yeah. Right. So so wouldn't that be able to translate over to the digital space as well? I See, I think so. I think it would. And I guess Domino's is arguing that it's not clear whether or not that's the case, which I guess is why they're trying to escalate it to the Supreme Court, I would suppose. I don't know if they're necessarily like just trying to fight this one guy in particular, but let's say this ends up becoming like a sweeping ruling from the Supreme Court. I mean, there's thousands to hundreds of thousands of websites that would need to change in order right. to to meet that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but that would be a pretty sweeping change. Yeah, it would. But I, it would, it would be like a very sweeping and a very sudden change. But I, I, I personally believe that the change needs to happen. Maybe not in the way that it's happening, that everything has to change all at once overnight or everyone's going to get a lawsuit, but it's something that eventually does need to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was actually a piece that you wrote, um, on Medium a while ago where you're, you were talking about how accessibility is linked to innovation. 
Yes. So a lot of modern day products can be linked to accessibility. They have, and they've, they're birthed because of these interesting use cases and trying to solve these interesting problems. I think I came across this. I was reading a book about accessibility not too long ago, and I think Google Maps was born out of an accessibility need, Hmm. which I thought was very interesting because it's something that a lot of people rely on currently today. And then the modern day typewriter was also built off of a accessibility need as well. So if I think that once you solve these really unique use cases and these really unique problems, you could create something that not only benefits the disabled community, but also everyone at large, just because when you're making life easier for someone, you're making life easier for everyone, which is why I think that when it's hard to sell accessibility to like companies and all these different organizations, like you, you have to look at some, some of the more positive sides of it because you could be creating something or that's like really opening up uh, a new avenue that didn't exist before. Yeah. What are some some steps that, let's say, companies can take or resources that they can look into if they want to start kind of getting ahead of this and making sure that their sites and apps and such are accessible to a number of people? There's a lot of, I guess when it comes down to like the product design process, I would say start thinking about accessibility early. And it could be once you're start de- starting to define your user group, like maybe create a few personas that have accessibility needs. So when, when you're designing around those personas, you're designing with that in mind. Another thing that I would say is when you're solving problems for people, you're solving specific targeted problems for users' needs. Just start thinking about like needs on a grand scale instead of very finite users because I think that people like to design things with themselves in mind sometimes and it's not it's not it's the fact that people don't address people with disabilities when they approach design I don't think that it's not their fault I don't think it's just something that's not considered because most people when they think about unless it directly influences them or like an issue or a topic or anything in that regard, it's not something that's going to be on the top of your mind. Like, I think that there should be accessibility training for new employees. And in terms of resources, there are tons of resources online. Um, I will say the Accessibility Project has a list of amazing resources, everything from software, um, screen readers that are available, different blogs, checklists, that sort of thing. And then also the web content accessibility guidelines, which is pretty much the golden standard for a bunch of accessibility information. Yeah, I remember that. I used to teach that actually. Not, uh, I mean, I taught it in one of my courses, but I remember it about websites have to be operable, perceivable, yep. understandable, and robust. I remember that completely. That poor, yeah, that poor acronym. Yep. Even when I, I mean, this is even back when I, I did design for the government for state government. Here in Georgia, it was so interesting how people always looked at accessibility as some sort of a trade-off that they needed to make for design, which I thought was a really kind of weird way to look at it. I don't know if they were specifically thinking about like colorblindness or something to that effect, but I mean, and there are people who, you know, design government websites who probably have heard this before about the reason that government websites end up looking kind of drab and, and, you know, ugly, I guess, in a way is because they have to have these sort of accessibility markers built into it. And so because of that, there's a compromise on the visual aesthetics of it, which I don't know if that's necessarily the case. 
I, yeah, I don't think that's the case at all. There's so many, because my thing is there's so many colors out there. Um, and some of the best, some of the best design is born within constraint. And if you're a really good designer, you can find good colors. Like just because you're making your website or, or a product accessible does not mean that it has to be boring at all. Just, just as long as it's up to the color, the appropriate color contrast ratio. Because I've made like these little flashcards for the poor acronym. And I like to use a lot of color personally. And I made sure that they still looked good, but all of the information was still very much so accessible. Mm-hmm. So, And I, I think also it's important to note that that accessibility doesn't always translate into just visual. Well, I don't want to say visual. It doesn't always translate into like graphics and colors. I mean, that could right. also be the the copy that you write. You know, yes, that's very, that's a very good point because the average reading level in America is, is on the eighth grade level. So once you start looking at that, like when, if you're writing and you're putting a lot of like jargon into your writing, you're making your content inaccessible because there's a barrier there. So yeah, I do stand behind that, which you said when it, when it comes to making sure your content is, is accessible as well, because that's something that I don't think a lot of people think about when I think about accessibility. Like when I think when people hear the word accessibility, if the first thing that comes to mind is color, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it like fully far reaches a lot further than that, even when it comes to the presentation aspects of design. Now you also do a lot of speaking um, on accessibility as well, right? You spoke at yes. a conference uh, last year about it. Yep. I've spoken on conferences about it. Um, I try to write about it. I've done a panel about it. It's just something that I'm really passionate about, obviously. <laughs> so... Why do you think it's important to get the word out about it? Just to make a uh, just to make people aware of it. I what I mentioned earlier, people don't really necessarily think about things that don't hit close to home to them, so it's just not in their awareness. So I think that there needs to be a little bit more advocacy just to make sure that people are aware and they understand the importance of it and they understand what happens if you don't include accessibility into whatever they're working on. Mm. So switching gears here a little bit, I mean, certainly I can tell that you have this this big passion for accessibility, this big passion for user experience design. What do you think kind of helps fuel these ambitions that you have? Um, well, I guess that's an interesting question. So I guess it's um I just get really absorbed into whatever I'm working on, whatever I'm interested in at, you know, um, and I've been interested in design. Design has been a part of my life for about 10 years. It's evolved over the course of those 10 years, but that passion for it has still been there. Um, and in terms of what fuels it, like specifically, I just get really excited when I see like some, a really cool design or a really well thought out workflow or a really interesting use of delight. I guess it's because it's just so familiar and it's just something that I've always told myself, like I've committed to this, to this as like something that I would really want to be a part of long term. And if I'm working within something, I just feel like I have to find avenues to continue to grow in it. Cause I feel like there's no level that you could reach as a designer. You could just say, Oh, I'm done. You know, like there's always something else that you can learn. There's always another way that you can look at something, another perspective that you can take. And then my, my, my biggest thing is as I'm learning, I like to learn and then also give back all the information that I'm learning to help other people as they're learning as well. So that's where the passion came to speak, to write, to advocate for accessibility. That's where a lot of that passion came from too. Yeah, I always try to tell designers they need to be writing more. Yes. They gotta get the they gotta take those <laughs> thoughts out of their head, put it down in a way for people to to share that knowledge. Also just for people to know that 
they know what they're talking about, you know, because right. so much of design is, is, and I guess development too, is such a, a visual thing, mm-hmm. or it can be very behind the scenes. And so if you're able to talk about it from your perspective, then not only do you show your knowledge about it, but you also are letting people know that, you know, this is, this is a passion of mine. It lets yeah. them know that you're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Who or what are some of your influences as a designer? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I guess that depends on like which side. See, I was not prepared for this question, <laughs> but there is, I, her name escapes me. She's like really big on Twitter. She's mm-hmm. also an, a, an accessibility advocate. I forget her name, but she's someone that I, that I kind of sort of kind of not look up to, but just, I guess, yeah, look up to. Like, I, I like the following that she created. Like, I, fi- I like the influence that she has over the community and she's using the influence in a positive way, but I forget her name. And then also Regine, she asked a question earlier. She's one of my friends. I love the work that she's doing um, in, in all the spaces that she's working in currently. So for example, she just did a conference this past weekend about designing for your future self, which mm. I think is very important. And some of the accessibility work she's been doing at NYU and all some of the other universities that she's been working with. Like, it's nice to have, I guess, people in the industry that are, are passionate about some of the same things that you're passionate about, just to be able to share information, bounce ideas off each other, yeah. and, like do that, you know, do that sort of have that community aspect of it. Do you have a dream project or anything that you'd love to do or love to be a part of? Yes, actually. Well, there's two things. One of them is I want to try to look at education and like how we are combining products, technology into education and try to find better ways for students to learn, absorb knowledge. Yeah, I've just been really passionate about like the education space lately and how you people can start applying technology in ways that can better help students. In what sort of way? Like, I mean, like I know that there are classrooms now that have like iPads and Chromebooks and smart, you know, whiteboards and all that sort of stuff. Are you thinking about something different than that? Um, I guess like the combination of that and then also the coursework that's being taught too. So like, and then also, so now that they're bringing a lot more technology into the classroom, how does that, um, how does like the teacher fit into all of this too? Because I come from a very traditional education system, teachers in front of the classroom, I'm sitting at the desk with my pencil and paper, but now you bring in technology into the classroom, like how do those interactions change? Like, is it more beneficial to the student? Is it mm. not more, you know, like how does technology transform how students learn? I guess that's more so on the research side of it, but just like to see how that's like evolving and like the trade-offs of that. What are you the most excited about right now? It can be in your career, it can be in your personal life, anything like that. Um, uh, I guess I'm excited about, I, I, I mean, I don't know, this is just like person in my personal life. I am um, moving soon and I'm moving to a, a spot in New York City that I've always wanted to live in. So that's exciting. Nice. And then in my professional life, I'm just excited. I guess I'm happy to be able to navigate this freelance contracting space in, in a way that I can still, you know, explore different projects, um, still have the opportunity to work with different companies. When I first started off freelancing, it wasn't something I was comfortable with because the first thought in my mind was how am I going to get a client, you know, and I'm going, how am I going to consistently get clients? And then come and transition out of a more traditional space in terms of employment. It's, it's something that gave me a lot of anxiety, but just being able to navigate it in a way that... Um, I have recently. It's mm-hmm. been very exciting and like satisfying. What are the best types of clients for you? 
In terms of the space or in terms of the working relationship? I mean, really, either one. I mean, we all want clients that we can really work well with. But I mean, like, (laughs) are there particular sectors that you're more interested in or anything like that where where it comes down to the type of clients that you service? I guess right now I'm excited to be working in like telecommunications just because I would be solving problems at scale Mm -hmm. um, and at a scale that I haven't worked with before. So that's very interesting. And just because I like to explore different spaces. So this is giving me the opportunity to really be able to do that. What is the New York design scene like for you? I I can only just imagine just from the times that I've visited up there, it feels like there's always something going on every day. I mean, actually, I would have to agree. It's if you're looking for like a meetup or an event or maybe even a conference there, it's there. You know, Um, when I first got out here, that was something that I, I like really dove into a lot, like meetups, events, conferences. One of my friends, he he speaks a lot and he invites me to all his conferences, which is very nice. Um, So I get to network a lot that way. But I would say that design is very involved here. Um, And there's a lot of ways that you can get involved. Like there's a very huge community of designers out here. And I would say that that's a good thing because if like, like, let's say you're a designer, you're looking for a mentor, like you could easily, I don't know how easy this could be, but you could go to like a meetup or a conference, you know, bump shoulders with somebody, spark a conversation and like, you know, start or sort of forge a path that way, which is nice because when I, before I moved to Texas, I lived in Iowa for a little bit. There was none of that. There was no me bumping shoulders with someone and trying to find a mentor at a meetup. So mm-hmm. I just think that there's a lot of opportunity in terms of designers in New York City. And then also it's a very like thriving community, which is nice. Do you have any mentors or anything that you kind of look up to now or work with? I would say that I have a lot of friends that I can Consider mentors, but they're not technically mentors. And I would say that they help me out in different ways in my career. Like, for example, I have a friend that is a speaker. So he, you know, sends me these speaking engagements. Like I can bounce topics for, you know, articles or if I want to come up with a new talk idea. So it's like, it's very, I guess like the the mentors that I have in my life are very informal, but they're very much so my mentors. So. Mm, okay. What does success look like for you? Like when you look back at your career, even I guess, you know, your whole journey starting out in Detroit, you know, living and working in Iowa, living and working in Texas, now you're in New York. What what does success look like for you at this point in your life? Um right now, I guess it looks like leaving an impact, honestly, both in an accessibility space, but then also both in terms of showing someone that came from the background that I did that it's possible. Like you could you know, like the tech space is definitely a space that they could enter into. It's not necessarily, when I first started off in the space, it wasn't the easiest space to navigate, but it's definitely very rewarding if they have the knack for either designing, developing, graphic design, illustration, just like the whole creative field. Like there, if there's a will, there's a way. So I just wanted to just be able to have that influence, but then also be able to make an impact in terms of accessibility and in terms of the community that I grew up in. So where do you see yourself in, say, I don't know, like the next five years or so? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Where do you where do you see yourself then? Um, into well, within the next five years, I either have my own agency if I could manage that and, and when that specializes in accessibility, but then um product and also product design, or working at a company where I can, you know, maybe be like a design lead, but then also bring a lot of accessibility knowledge there or just like, you know, help educate 
I guess, the design team or just the opportunity to practice accessibility in any capacity that I can at this point, <laughs> to be completely honest, whether it's on my own with consulting and contracting or whether it's in um, a, a corporation that allowed me to do that as well. Well, Aaron, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, I have a website, ErinNewby.com. I have, I also have a medium that I write. I try, I try to, I need to write more, but I'm writing on there as well. But you can also find my blog post on my website. Um, I have examples of uh, some of my past work on my website. Um, so yeah, those two, just my medium and uh, my website, also my Twitter. I'm not as active as I probably should be, but um, I do uh, tweet every once in a while. And what's your Twitter handle? Aaron underscore newbie. All right. Sounds good. Well, Aaron Newby, I want to thank you so much just for for coming on the show. I mean, I think certainly, and forgive the bad pun here, but you're definitely not a newbie <laughs> when it comes to accessibility and being in this this industry. I mean, I think some of the things certainly that you talked about in terms of resources and accommodation and things like that. So there are things that, you know, designers and developers need to be aware of. You know, social media has now given everybody a voice. Accessibility now sort of pushes the web closer towards those uh, those ideals that the Internet sort of had in the very beginning, that it's accessible by everybody, that everyone can learn. And so, you know, it's thanks certainly to accessibility advocates like you that help make that happen. So thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Aaron Newby and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Aaron and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Revision path is a glitch media network podcast and is produced by Maurice Cherry and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by music man Dre with intro and outro music by yellow speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you like this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes about a minute or so to do, but it really, really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.